Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 81. After Hours with Dr. Devon Brown. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season thus far, we've eavesdropped on the correspondence of Screwtape, and we've listened to his toast to the Tempter's Training College. However, we're now in the middle of Narnia Month. In previous weeks, we've discussed this season's assigned chronicle, which is the Silver Chair. And today we have a returning guest to the show who came on earlier this season to talk about a biography which he'd written of Lewis called A Life Observed. His name is Dr. Devon Brown. It doesn't matter if you forget it. I can always tell you again. Now, in case you didn't listen to that earlier episode, here is a little bit about Dr. Brown. Dr. Devon Brown is a Lilly Scholar and Professor of English at Asbury University, where, in addition to other literature classes, he teaches a course on Lewis and Tolkien. He has a PhD from the University of South Carolina and a master's degree from the University of Florida. Dr. Brown is the author of a number of books on Narnia called Inside Narnia, which is about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Inside Prince Caspian, and Inside the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, as well as the book which we're going to be discussing today, Inside the Silver Chair. Dr. Brown, welcome back to Pints for Jack. Thanks so much. It's great to be back. Now, since I last spoke to you, I've bought a house in Wisconsin and begun planning our move there at the end of the summer. So what have you been up to since you were last on the show a couple of months ago? Well, I'll say this. We, we can never be too grateful for the way our country is getting back to normal. And so my wife, Sharon, and I went to Chicago to visit some of her cousins uh, just this last weekend. And, you know, we're able to drive up and be mask-free and safe at the same time. It was a, just another reminder of the providence of God and the goodness of God. And what a long 15 or 16 months it's been in lockdown. <laughs> and, and, you know, it didn't have to be this way. And, 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 you know, even as we get used to it, I, I hope we're still thankful every single day for the way things seem to be turning out. At the time of recording here in California, they just lifted all of the restrictions. And so I went to the supermarket and whenever I saw anybody without a mask, I just beamed. It's like, oh, look at that beautiful face. I haven't seen faces in so long. <laughs> yeah. And I, I anticipate lots of things will be easier, which will, which will also be a joy. Um, a lot of people were just exhausted this last year from doing the normal things with all the extras that implied, you know, you, you get somewhere, you, you start out of your car, you're halfway across the parking lot. Oh, you forgot your mask. Um, if you're teaching, you've got to bring your computer to be ready to zoom and put everything online. So there's been a lot of extra things and, and it's been a tiring year and an anxious year, people not knowing what's going to happen. And, you know, I hope it's a lesson in gratitude that we hold on to a long time ago. Humans have a way of forgetting it. Uh, <laughs> people talk about how long it'll take to get back to normal. If, if you've done it yet, it takes about a day. You're out there and, and halfway through grocery shop and you forgot that the last time you were in there, you had a mask on and we're trying to avoid people. So I hope we, we stay grateful for that. Yes, but we shouldn't get too optimistic. And that brings us to the quote of the week, which is one of my favorite lines, which comes from Puddleglum who says, life isn't all fricasseed frogs and eel pie. And on to today's drink of the week. And mine is Hazy Mind. It's an IPA, it's by Firestone, and I'm drinking this in honour of Prince Rillian, who in this book, for at least a certain portion of it, also has a very hazy mind. I, I said that I, I went to the supermarket. I, I spent a solid 10 minutes walking up and down the, the alcohol aisle trying to find beers with silver chair related uh, names of some description. Are you drinking anything? Yeah. I mean, it was nice to read a, a, one of the Narnia books where it's cold. Um, so that we go to the north and they're cold, cold the and whole wet. time because, 
here here in Lexington, it's hot. And so I'm drinking a big glass of iced tea on the rocks. Lovely. Well, one of the benefits for Gold Level supporters on Patreon is that we toast one of them each episode. And today we're toasting Pauline Webb. If you raise your glass, Pauline, may all your endeavors ultimately bear fruit. And may you reap a harvest of patience in the meantime while you're waiting. Cheers. Cheers. Now, I wanted to begin by explaining how the idea for this episode came about. But before we can do that, would you mind explaining how you came to write a series of books on the Chronicles of Narnia in the first place? Yeah, and, and part of the, the thing I hope to do here is to encourage all your listeners. We need a whole new generation of Lewis scholars. Um, there hasn't been a Lewis conference in the last 15 months, but there'll be some soon. Um, there'll be a retreat at uh, Montreat College this summer, and then next spring, they're going to have the whole conference again and the number of great attendees. And so I encourage people who are interested in Lewis not just to listen at home, but to consider going to a conference. They'll be made most welcome. Uh, you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to present a paper, but it won't be long before you might think about it. And um, I'll just say people you'll hear present all started out as Lewis fans. There were no classes, very few, you know, master's classes or PhD level classes in Lewis. You just just became an expert by listening and reading and thinking and meeting people. Anyway, that was my story. And, uh, and when I did my PhD, I had no idea there was such a thing as Lewis scholarship. Anyway, I got out and found a journal, a little journal out of California called The Lamppost. And I wrote some articles, uh, got them published, because that's what you learn to do in grad school. So that was a big plus of grad school for me. And after a number of articles where you know, very small journals where they give you two copies, one for you, one for your mom to show her friends. <laughs> uh, I'd been at Asbury for seven years. And um, usually you um, do a, a project to get a sabbatical. And so I proposed a book on the Chronicles of Narnia. And um, I was on page 40 and I was still in chapter two of Lion Witch. And I started with Lion Witch and that's another whole story, the order question. So anyway, um, I decided to do a whole book about the Lion Witch and Wardrobe. And right about that time, they announced the first movie coming out. And if if your listeners are interested in doing a book um, with a with a brick and mortar publisher and a, and a pretty big one, a for profit trade one, they would like to know that they could sell ten thousand copies. But smaller one might be happy with five thousand. And for that, you need the interest that a movie generates. So in fact, I got a contract with Baker to do uh, Inside Narnia: Guide to Exploring the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. Uh, and as you know, there was a second movie, so I got there was an opportunity to do a second book, and that became Inside Prince Caspian, and then there was a third movie and a third book, Inside the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And so I conceived of myself maybe every two or three years writing one of these inside books, and uh, you know maybe put them in a box at the end like the Narnia books are, are put in. And that would be what I do for the you know next fifteen or twenty years till I retired. Well, they pulled the plug after the third movie, right? And uh, you know. Uh, and I did some other things, so that's all fine too. Uh, but then they greenlit the silver chair again. It looked like it was going to happen. Things are moving there. And it's weird. You almost have to write the book. Well, you have to write the book before a movie comes out because a publisher will want the book six months to come out six months before the movie so it can rot, be out there writing the wave, the increasing wave of interest. And they'll, they'll want, they would like a year for themselves to edit it and print it. Uh, so, so they would want it a year and a half before the movie comes out. So I had a contract with Erdman's to write the next inside book, Inside the Silver Chair. Got it written. It's in pretty good, I would say it's in final form for, for me, ready to go to an editor. And then they pulled the plug on Silver Chair. So it's sitting on a shelf, uh, basically in a server uh, 
uh, up at Erdman's in Grand Rapids, Michigan right now. And that was the thought that I had when I was preparing for the, our Silver Chair episodes this season. I suddenly thought, wait, I bet he's already written it in advance. And I reached out to you and you very kindly sent me a copy. So I got to read your book in advance of our Silver Chair episode. And I thought we need to bring him on and we need to talk about this book that hasn't quite made it yet. <laughs> yeah. And I, I look, I, I assume that someday Netflix will get around to making the Narnia films. And at some point they'll do Silver Chair. They may do it first. They do it, may do it in publication order. They may do it in the chronological order, but they're going to do it. And, you know, Lord willing, I'll still be around to enjoy it coming out. But, you know, it's it's taken a, a lot of time. I'll just say that. You know, how long, Lord, how long? Oh, absolutely. And, and is that your plan to uh, wait to publish it? You're not going to try and self-publish it or get the rights back or anything else like that? No, I, 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 you know, I'll just say this. People who, again, who are looking to, to write a book, uh, if you have a, a publisher out there, if you can get a publisher, and it's, it's not the easiest thing to do. There's quite a few books about Lewis out there. Some some publishers will say, "Look, we've got enough books about books out there." But if you can get a, if you can get a contract with a publisher, I, I urge people to do it. You you get the whole you'll get a whole group of people helping you. You'll get someone who'll edit it. And I'll just say this: all of my editors, my books, they're never named. It's just how it works. But man, they've done a lot to help my my writing clearer and more interesting. I had one editor. And I won't say her name, but she's a pretty famous Christian writer. And she did one of my books about uh, The Hobbit. And she just said, you don't want that. You don't want that. Take that out. You don't want that. And she was right. <laughs> and from her, I really learned a lot about, about writing that I somehow hadn't quite learned up till then. So, so if you get a real publisher, uh, you know, they'll help with the editing and formatting and then the cover and then the distribution. Uh, the one thing they won't help with is, you know, royalties. I would, you'll... People would be shocked at how little most royalties are. Mm. Um, when I published my first book, my students at Asbury said, Dr. Brown, you published a book. Yeah, are you going to quit your job at Asbury? And I'd been to the dentist that day. And I said, look, my and I'd gotten a crown, right? So at my age, you start getting crowns at some point. And I said, look, I got a crown at the dentist and my, my royalty, my advance paid my dentist bill and that's it. So you... You know, I'm not quitting my day job, basically. <laughs> yes, you can make yeah. tens of dollars. Tens of dollars. <laughs> what was it that actually happened with the Silver Chair movie? Because I just remember there being a lot of confusion. There was a question mark as to yeah. whether it was going to happen. And then suddenly there was all this movement and various people started getting attached to the project and being released. And then just it disappeared. And then the next thing we knew, Narnia had been sold to Netflix. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give a, a little look backwards for people who haven't been part of the conversation. But the, the general consensus was that uh, the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe made by Walden Media was was quite good, right? People really liked it. And then with Caspian and The Voyage Dawn Treader, each one became a little bit less excellent, mm -hmm. a little bit less of a commercial success and a little bit less of a, a critical success, right? And so Douglas Gresham, who, who sees himself as the sort of caretaker of the Lewis estate, said, look, I've got seven of the greatest books known to mankind here. I, why would I want to make a mediocre movie from them? So he pulls the plug and looks for a different way to plug it back in the wall. And, and part of the problem, well, it, I think it's the main problem, is the scripts, right? The scripts begin to uh, depart so much from Lewis's original, and the people making them want to put their thumbprint on it and somehow... 
see Lewis as, as this great genius who's defective in some ways that they can remedy, right? And, and when you talk to someone, all their remedies, you know, which are supposed to make it better, actually make it worse, right? Mm-hmm. And we could have, you know, podcasts on the flaws of the Narnia and the, the Tolkien movies, right? And mostly they'll be in departures from the original, right? Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, he started with a new idea, which was to get the screenplay first and have that lockdown. And he got a really good screenplay writer. I can't remember his name right there. He's a guy who did uh, Life of Pi, the tiger movie on uh, the okay. boat mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and did the, um, the Peter Pan movie in, um, in London there mm-hmm. um, with Johnny Depp. Anyway, Funny very good guy. And he, he, yeah, yeah. And so very good writer, had got a very good script, all locked down, had sold it, had greenlit it. And then my understanding was the company who, who was going to make it got sold. And I think this happens a lot in the movie business or, or all in corporate industry. A company gets sold and then all of their plans are sort of up for grabs. And at that point, Netflix seemed very interested in the Narnia universe bought the rights to all of them. And we were expecting, oh, this is going to be great because they could do an episodic one where they don't have to cut anything, mm-hmm. right? They could do 22 episodes for each book and 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 keep every every great scene, not have to cut Tom Bombadil kind of thing, <laughs> right? And uh, anyway, that still could happen, uh, still probably will happen, but you know, there's been very little, again, then COVID hit. I get that was a crazy thing. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I can't imagine it's not going to happen soon because- I'll just say this, as I look at Amazon and I look at Netflix, they're really keen to come up with some great original material. And what I see is some pretty good original material with the occasional great, but, but you know, not a lot of great. And so um, Amazon's hurrying to bring us something Tolkien related. And I would think Netflix sh- should be hurrying to bring us something Narnia related. Mm. There you're talking about adaptation. Now, a very faithful adaptation, I would say, is the BBC version of The Silver Chair. And I was a kid when that came out. Uh, and actually, Daniel and Phil from The Lamppost Listener recently did a long review going through it. And they they commented on something that it was what I remembered, that it was kind of plodding because they did just translate the text to a script and that was pretty much it so at some some points it does feel like it kind of drags but having said that i think puddle glum in that is just wonderful and whenever i read anything about puddle glum he's 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 the image that i have in my head have you seen the bbc version i i saw them when i was younger i haven't seen them recently because they're kind of hard to get your hands on sometimes but i did see them when i was younger and i want to run this by you because americans seem to equate movie stars with models, right? All, of, all, the, all the kids in the silver chair could have also been models. They're perfect, perfectly look, good looking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the BBC one that we're talking about, they do look like the kids next door. And I think there's a huge plus there. I mean, that's Lewis's whole point, that there's something noble about all of us, even your next door neighbor. And these kids, in fact, look like you or your next door neighbor, not like mm-hmm. some model. And, and while... Uh, for an American audience, you're going to say, man, those kids look don't look like actors in America. No, they don't. They look like next-door neighbors. And that's Lewis's point about even the most ordinary person has a nobility to them. So, It is a very common habit among American adaptations of English properties that they reboot the series and they just make everybody much better looking. There's been a long line of TV shows that I loved, loved, loved growing up in England, such as Red Dwarf, that they've tried to bring over to the States. And every time they make all of the actors much prettier, <laughs> but they always, unfortunately, typically lose something in the translation. 
I would say with the notable exception of The Office. When I first heard that they were making a US version of The Office, <laughs> I was, oh, 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 what's this? Well, oh, the Americans, oh, they can't take our humor. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I was very pleasantly surprised. The first season was, eh, it was, it was pretty much mostly a reproduction. There were a couple of new, uh, new episodes, new scripts in there. And then they went and took the show in a, in a different, less cringy direction, and they really made it their own. But even in that case, they made everybody much prettier, even Dwight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, by the way, Faithful Adaptations, most of your audience will know this, but the Focus on the Family Radio Theater, has, has, you know, it's all audio, but it is an incredibly faithful and I think incredibly moving uh, adaptation. And in preparation for this show, I got out the silver chair and listened to it again. Uh, Paul McCusker's direction and writing, and it's it's very good. Douglas Gresham introduces it, and um, I'll say this: uh, Focus on the Family is going to come into the 20th century since I was last on their website. Um, back then, you would buy you know a, a CD, and they would send you a, a physical CD, and now uh, they'll send you an audio file that you can download and play on whatever device you like. So um, people listening today could get have one you know before they go to bed tonight and listen to it, and I think I think it's a great. It's a great faithful, both in spirit and, and dialogue and ca casting. It's just a wonderful adaptation. And you can now get them much more easily. When I first listened to the audio version of Narnia, it was on four cassettes per book. Yeah. And then when I re-encountered Narnia in my 20s, I got a box set of CDs with all of them. And now I have them all available on Audible digitally. Yeah. <laughs> much <okay>. easier. <laughs> Well, let's talk about Lewis's book then, The Silver Chair, and your book and the insights that you talk about in there. One of the things that I really loved about your book was how you set it up and how you explained the setup for The Silver Chair in the first chapter, Crime Behind the Gym, where you explain how great adventures spring from difficult times. I love that idea, that idea that difficult times are fertile soil for great adventures. And I don't think I'd have really have been able to articulate that before. But after I read that chapter, I realized that this was probably one of the reasons why I loved Lewis's books, as well as the fact that I hated school and would have much preferred to be in Narnia uh, rather than heading back into class. Uh, but would you mind talking about that a little bit, about how great adventures spring from difficult times? Yeah, so so here's here's where the idea came about. So I'm sitting down to write book number four in the Inside series, and I look back at the start of each book. And you start with Lion Witch and, you know, the bombs are raining down on London. These poor kids get sent away from their own family during the war. Difficult time. Uh, second book, Prince Caspian, a more mundane but no, nonetheless gloomy situation. They're sitting on the train platform about to go back to school. Boys going to one, girls going to another, and everything's just a bit sad. And then uh, Dawn Treader. Uh, has something we all sort of fear being sent to a really nasty relative's house while while your older brother gets to study with the, the old professor and your older sister gets to go to America with your mom and dad and you're there with record stinker Eustace and then of course in Silver Chair where um, Jill's crying behind the gym at Experiment House where the bullies are in Horse and His Boy it's possibly the worst here's Shasta who's uh, the adopted son of a really mean and unloving adopted sort of stepdad guy. And he's about to have something worse being s sold to a Tarkin. And uh, let's see, what's the other one? Oh, magician's nephew, uh, Diggory and his mom. She's, she's unhealthy. He gets to stay with his nutty uncle. And he used to have a house in the countryside with a pony. And 
you know, what is Lewis doing by starting all of his books in negative circumstances? Well, I think his point is that that's, that's the soil that great adventures spring from. And that's, as Gandalf would say, that's an encouraging thought for each of us the next time we end up in a, in a very negative circumstances. Things aren't right. We're down. It's, it's bad. We, we can't fix it. And it just seems like those are the times where we're open to something new. We're open to God moving in our lives. We're open to, you know, something, so, an adventure to spring forth in a way that it doesn't happen in good times. In good times, we're awfully satisfied and, and not open to, to new things, don't want to do anything different. So um, anyway, that, that's, that's kind of where the idea came from. Mm. Now, we live in a world where everything's instant, whether it's our coffee, whether it's our Amazon orders. We want, you know, People are shocked when they find out they have to wait more than 24 hours for a delivery. And we often want the Christian life to be very similar. You know, I've heard plenty of testimonies where the person speaking has made it sound like once they accepted Jesus, it was nothing but ease, and their life was filled with nothing but saint-like virtue. But in your second chapter, you really underscore the fact that growth is usually gradual, and in particular with yeah, reference to Eustace. Yeah. So, so, you know, people think about this being uh, the Jill and Eustace story, and that's true, but it's also the Eustace story and the Jill story separately. And uh, so we saw Eustace's great transformation in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in one sense, there was a great moment that he could turn to, his undragoning. Uh, and let's talk about that briefly, because, uh, you know, he's trying to, well, first off, he doesn't, he's been acting dragonly, but doesn't know it, right? So, so all up until he becomes a dragon, uh, he doesn't know that he's been, he's been acting like a dragon. He thinks he's been acting nice and everybody else is beastly towards him. Anyway, he becomes a dragon and uh, he sees the way he's been acting. And that's the first start. He looks into the mirror and he sees um, how ugly he is on the outside and realizes that that's what he's like on the inside. So he has to see the way he's been and, and want to change. And then he has this moment where, you know, he tries to undress himself. You know, he, um, they, they, go, they go to this mountain, which, you know, did he? Is this his second trip to Aslan's Mountain? What was that mountain he went up to? I, we don't know. There's not enough to say. He was so he doesn't recognize. He just say, "Oh, I've been here before at the start of Silver Chair." Anyway, he goes up there, and he's able to take off a number of skins. But each time he realizes he has a smaller one underneath, and you know, Lewis doesn't exactly say what that means, but I always interpret that to mean that each of us, once we see how beastly we've been. We've, we're able, of course, we're able to make some superficial changes, make some changes in outward appearances um, if we want to. Certainly people who are not Christians, not believers, don't ask God to help them change. They've been able to change in some ways. But he's saying that there's something about Eustace deep down underneath that he can't change on his own. And for that, he needs Aslan. And Aslan says, you'll have to let me undress you. And just like in um, Great Divorce, he has to get permission Right, the angel asks, I think, about eight times for the man with the lizard, "Is it okay if I kill it? You'll have to let me undress you." And so he lets him, gives permission, and, he, and it hurts. It hurts like worse than ever. Uh, he, he talks about how it hurt so hard, and that deep down kind of change is is painful. But um, Aslan does get that that lion's that dragon skin completely off, and, and he describes it briefly. It, it, it's really abominable sitting over there. What he helps him get rid of. And then he throws him into the, the pool of whatever that is there, special water. And uh, he, he comes out uh, the boy he was supposed to be, right? And it hurts then too. Anyway, so, so there's the two steps of it. One, 
he sees what he is and then as he lets Aslan address him. But but now he's got to, you know, keep working on itself. And there's the famous line from uh, Dawn Shredder. It would be nice and fairly true to say from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. And there's a certain kind of book that does that. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain kind of Christian testimony that does that. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. It's just great news, right? Uh, that, I mean, most of, that's my story. That's most of my friend's story, that when Christ uh, took over our heart, um, we weren't immediately a saint. We, we were then set on the right road and had a lot more steps to go. And, uh, you know, there are days when we were quite tiresome, but the cure had begun. And that cure continues here um, in Silver Chair. And you, you see each time he's about to start that lecturing thing that he likes to do because <laughs> yes. he's very smart and that's his thing. And he checks himself each time. He checks himself each time. Even when he's right, he checks himself. One of my favorite scenes is where he offers Jill a peppermint because he sees that she's not herself. That, that's something the old Eustace would never have done, right? He would never have thought of doing it to say, oh gosh, she's not herself. I'm not going to press it. Let me give her, give her uh, see if she'd like a peppermint here. So, so we see, it's, it's a lovely point where we see him, you know, further down the road, still offering a lot of suggestions that may not always be wanted. And I'll just say, if people get to the last battle, it's uh, who's king then? Really, not uh, Tyrion. Tyrion, yeah. Tyrion has to, he's interrupting somebody who's telling a story. He says, he says uh, you know, let the maiden tell her story because he, he's, he's about to lecture a little bit again. So, you know, even then he's still working on it a bit. Uh, and, and, you know, aren't we all? Yeah. I do really like that. And I think a lesser writer would have made him so annoying by being so good all of the time. The fact that we see Eustace slip up and also make mistakes and be kind of annoying at times uh, just lends far more authenticity to the story and a much better representation of reality. Yeah. And the other thing I look for, and I'll just say the, the gradualness of Eustace's conversion is, is great. You, everybody can see that. But if Lewis has an idea of what conversion looks like in himself and others, we might expect to look for a few more things. And, and these are not going to be quite as apparent, I would say. Um, and, and that is, let's go to the great divorce, right? And there's the, there's the man with the lizard. And once he's converted, the lizard becomes a stallion. So his, his vice becomes uh, a virtue that he can ride uh, tw- on his journey toward heaven that can carry him faster and farther. Lewis says something odd to that. Let me grab my book here. In Mere Christianity, in the preface, you guys talked about it when it went through. No man, I suppose, is tempted to every sin. It so happens that the impulse which makes men gamble has been left out of my makeup. And, no doubt, I pay for this by my lacking some good impulse of which it is the excess or perversion. And, you know, Lewis is right, absolutely right, in suggesting evil can't create anything. So so it takes something good and, and twists it or makes it excess or something. So if that thing has been converted in Eustace, you know, what, what, what is his stallion, right? Mm-hmm. What, what, what might we look for that? And I, I, again, it's not that clear. And not every one of the ghosts we see that sort of conversion, but, you know, Lewis mentions it twice in other works. And I'll just say this, he's, Lewis is very smart and very perceptive. Uh, the diary piece that you guys read in the Dawn Treader piece just suggests he's very aware and he takes everything he can see and, of course, turns it to his own ends, you yeah. know, to make to paint the other people as being, um, you know, the, the beasts and him, the poor victim. 
Well, he's awfully perceptive, especially in that opening chapter when we first meet him, uh, of it's them, isn't it, Jill? You're, they're bullying you. Yeah, I, I can see that. You know, and he, he, he now turns that perception uh, and insight into being quite nice to Jill. Um, and, and not that he's perfect. You know, every so often he says, yeah, remember when I was afraid of heights and now you're afraid of small places. <laughs> but he's also quick to say, look, you know, Puddle Glum will go first. You hold on to his heel. I'll hold on to yours and you'll be okay because, you, you know, he, he's, he's gotten pretty good at that. So anyway, I, I kind of keep looking for that. I guess the other thing before we leave this point is, you know, Lewis is very f- gracious to give us multiple viewpoints on the same topic. So this this topic of the gradual conversion, you guys covered it in Silver Chair, um, where where uh, Screw Tape tells Wormwood he will be working from the center out. Yeah. Right. So so if the undragony of Eustace is the center, now we get to see each consecutive circle and Eustace come under Aslan's. Uh, governance. So it's it's a great concept and, and we'll see it in different characters. And speaking of Aslan, probably the scene which was burned into my brain as a child from the silver chair was the conversation between Jill and Aslan by the water. And I remember when I reread this in my 20s, I suddenly now saw the Gospel of John all over that scene. What was Lewis really trying to do here? Yeah, and, and I'll just say this. Part of this has to do with, you know, what does it mean to read a book and, and what's what's fa- a fair inference? And I'll suggest the Chronicles are particularly easy to go astray on because we'll see a reflection, we'll hear an echo of some biblical element, and we'll want to make it a mirror. We'll want to make it the exact thing. And a classic a, example A pure is, allegory. A pure allegory. Ah, this is this. And a classic example is when people want to say that Aslan's table at the end of Dawn Treader, that must be the, the Eucharistic table. Well, gosh, there's a lot of dissimilarities to call it Eucharist. He, you know, reap a cheap toasts to um, Ramandu's daughter, not to add, and, and I get this, I get the stone knife is there. And so we have a remembrance of Aslan's, but not much of one. I mean, like none at all. And, and Aslan doesn't seem to be present there anyway we have to be careful to bring out the equal sign. So um, Jill is thirsty here, but she's first of all, thirsty for water, right? She's been crying. She has any water and this is incredibly great water. And uh, there's all these passages about water, right? Um, Let the one who's thirsty come in revelation. Um, the John one that you mentioned, I'm the way, the truth and life. No one comes to the father except through me. And then whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Meeting the woman and by the we, well. Yeah. The women at the well. Exactly. And those are all echoes, but you know, Jill's going to get thirsty again, right? And she doesn't come to God by going through that Aslan necessarily to the stream there. So anyway, the stream here is, I guess, first of all, a stream. Um, It's not directly connected to the father or eternal life. Uh, It is the coldest and most refreshing water she drinks and it quenches her thirst that said, there is this other side. It's one of my favorite lines. It goes by pretty fast. Um, although she had been longing for something like this, Jill felt afraid, right? When she looks right out the door and she's about to go in, she had been longing for something like this. And of course she had. You know, she's been bullied there at Experiment House. She's been left alone. There's no justice. There's no friendship. Um, a lot of fear. And here's, here's a land where all those things are going to be different. And she's been longing for something like this. And so, you know, the idea that she's been longing for a relationship with Azan, she's been longing for this adventure. Um, yeah. So so it's got to be something more than just water. 
but I, I would be careful about saying exactly what it is. Uh, it's something like the things that we find in, in John. It's something like that, but it's not exactly those things, I think. Mm. Or I don't know what else to do. I don't know what more to do with it before you get into some sort of danger zone where this equals that. <laughs> do you add, you add any more in that one? I mean, what do you do with it? Uh, I don't know. I think it's like, well, the lot of stuff in Narnia. I completely agree with you. I don't want to commit the sin of allegory, but the motifs seem to match up very nicely insofar as here is a girl who is looking for something, needing something, and she encounters a person who offers her everything that she ever wanted, but in a harder way. Think of the land in The Great Divorce or the refrain that Aslan is not a tame lion. In the same way with the woman at the well, when she meets Jesus, Jesus gives her everything that she has ever wanted, but not in the way she ever expected. And it it also cost something for her because she had to offer a confession. She had to speak to her own life and come clean as to what she had been doing. Lewis has the line about the God, God's hardness and men's softness. And I, I'm often put in mind of that because she is given this, this water, but she also comes face to face with what she has done. I think it speaks very, very powerfully to what, what we're told about Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That he's not safe, but he is good. Yeah, yeah, you're you're exactly right, and and I and I would add to that, you know, you're exactly right, and all the details that go up to that. So the first thing that she thinks she's going to do is um, draw some circles and some pentagrams and say some special words <laughs> to 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 have make sure that the lion lets her into this land. And the very first lesson she gets is from Eustace. He wouldn't like that, and it wouldn't work. You can't yeah. make him do something, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so there's there's lesson one. Then lesson two, she gets there, and she'd like to drink. Would you move? Would you mind moving? Oh, no, I'm not <laughs> moving. It. I'm here. And she's going to have to, you're exactly right, get it on her own terms, get it on his terms. And and she, she's lear- she learns that Aslan isn't a vending machine, right? Yeah. He, you can't make him do what he's, you, you, you can only ask him, and, mm-hmm. and he likes to be asked. And the other thing you mentioned is really great, too. It's a great scene is uh, the woman at the well is confronted with exactly what she's done. Uh, Jill's a little bit better at it, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he says, he says, what were you doing at the, at the edge of the cliff? I was showing off, right? That is a good answer, answer. right? Yeah. Now you're on track. You've made a good answer. You're conf- you, you, you've learned that I'm not a being that you tell what to do. I tell you what to do, and you get it on my terms. You get the water. Oh, then there's no other well, right? Then you'll die of thirst unless you come and do it exactly the way it has to be. And that's a great, first, that maybe that is the first lesson in coming to Christ, um, that he's in charge. And, and you'll, you get it on his terms or not, no, or no terms. And, you know, she, she doesn't dare not to dare at the end, right? This is her great opportunity. And to her credit, she sees it and takes it. And despite that, in the book, throughout, the children get very little right. They forget the signs, they miss most of them, and they're repeatedly distracted by either comfort or promises of comfort. And the application of that to the Christian life seems fairly clear. We see how the children get distracted from their mission simply at the promise of warm baths and, and fires and food. Yeah, and, and I would say that, that even though the journey in the silver chair is quite fantastical, 
the actual story of faith journey is is the most like our own journey for most of us. Mm-hmm. Um, Jill is not, you know, Eustace, the old Eustace. She's not Edmund. She's not a traitor. Uh, she's not a beast, right? She's just an ordinary kind of kid who who complains a fair bit and doesn't stay focused on the job and thinks she's got the signs better than she does. And she's like all of us, right? And so we see our journey in hers. And the mistakes she makes are not, you know, something where she's got to have this huge meeting with uh, Aslan like Edmund does, right? It's it's the, the common ordinary mistakes, but yet she feels them. And the, what do they call it? All the snappings. That's a British thing, right? All the yep. snappings and quarrelings, and she feels bad about it. And uh, I think I think that's a lot of Christians. Christians aren't making these horrible, big, gigantic mistakes. They're making lots of little ones, and 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 in good times and bad. I mean, the first time she forgets the signs, she forgets them because you know everything's so exciting at Carapevrel, right? She's got a, a feast and she's got new clothes and she's even forgot to think about it. And then later on, she forgets them in bad times. And the other thing that's kind of interesting is this is a book where Aslan isn't with them. He doesn't come with them Mm. to Narnia, except briefly in a dream to Jill. He meets them on his country. And then he, yes, he's there on the dock, but blows him back to his country right away. And he says this, he says, when you get down to Narnia, the air's kind of thick down there. You're not going to hear me quite as well as you do up here. Things aren't going to look like they do up here. And, you know, that's our all of our lives in, in the real world. Pay no attentions to appearances, is our final words. Follow the signs, remember the signs, obey the signs. And uh, those are good words for all of us to hear down here. Here in San Diego, there is a retreat center about an hour and a half away up a mountain. And as I've served in the diocese here, I've repeatedly heard stories of people where they go up to the mountain and they have a real moment of encounter, a real metanoia, And they all speak about what happens when they go back down the mountain. You know, when you can see up on the mountain, you could see things clearly. You knew what you needed to do. You had resolved to do it. And you start going back down the mountain and it starts getting a little fuzzy. And then before you know it, it's a few weeks later and you've forgotten about that important truth that you had finally come to grasp. You'd, you, you sort of started to lag on all of those great resolutions that you had assigned yourself. Uh, one of my favorite bands, Casting Crowns, they have an album called The Altar and the Door. The lead singer, I saw a video of him explaining it, and he said, when I'm at the altar, sin, it smells, it stinks. I don't want anything to do with it. I can see clearly. But then I turn away and I start walking towards the door and something happens. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just say that the, the young person version of that, many people might know, is going to church camp of some sort, right? Yes. And so when I was a kid... You know, my brothers and I would go to the church camp and you would be, you know, on fire and you'd be committed to doing better. And, you know, you're going to read your Bible, you're going to pray, and you're not going to fight with your brother and sister. And, you know, your version of jail is you go home and you gradually pray less. Don't read your Bible every day and start getting in quarrels with your brother and sister over nothing. And it looks just like the silver chair. Um, and, and, you know, church camp was, was Aslan's country. <laughs> and, you know, this is, but this is great news. Right? They, at the end, you know, they, they complete their task and they're told, well done. And, 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 and Aslan will say, I'm not going to always scold. Uh, matter of fact, I'm only going to scold when you need me to scold. And I only do so out of love. The things that she does wrong, we all do wrong. And you mentioned before about Aslan's appearances in this book. He's there at the beginning, he's there at the end, and you have that dream. 
But other than that, he isn't around in this story, yet he's also somehow in control of the events. And I would say, you get that in spades then when you get to the horse and his boy. But in this book, Puddleglum tells us that there are no accidents. Uh, Yet Aslan also at the same time seems absent. How do we navigate that paradox? You know, if this is supposed to be really about your story and mine, it it seems to be that way because... um, you know, we don't look around and see God like they might have in the first century or like we did when we were at the mountaintop. He's here in a less direct sense, maybe through his words, right? And and I'll just say a, a word about the, the signs. They're not exactly quite equal to scripture. Uh, it's one of these things we shouldn't do an equal sign to, because why? Jill's the only one who's commanded to follow them, and I guess Eustace to some extent, but no other people on the planet, unlike scripture, which all of us are supposed to follow. And, and there's nothing moral about them, right? They're instructions on how to rescue the prince. They're not thou shalt not or thou shalt. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they're accomplished, we forget them, that we should forget them because they're done. So, so they're not exactly quite equal to, um, you know, the quote from Deuteronomy that you should bind these words on your heart and say them in the morning when you get up. And, but they're, they're, they're like that, but there's not an equal sign. But yeah, that's, that's how we're meant to remember Christ here is is to remember his words as words of guidance. Um, and, and we find him there as well as, well as other places. Um, Jill finds him in a dream. And, and then we find she finds him in all the things that are laid in the path ahead of her. There's this interest. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me talk about the there's no accidents next because it's a good one um, because it's tied up with how, how their whole thing works. Um, when, when they finally find the prince, he's under a spell and he says, oh, this under me, was from some poem. It has nothing to do with you, right? And oh my gosh, this is all a mistake. And, you know, Puddleglum, who proves to know a lot more than he seemed at the beginning, uh, says there are no mistakes, right? Aslan knew all about this. When that poem was carved, he knew what would get eroded. He knew it would be here for us, for us to follow. There's no mistakes. And um, I don't know. I, I, I sometimes wonder how much Aslan knows. Um, because he tells her she's to follow the signs until they find the prince or they die or they give up. And, you know, does he not know which one they're going to do? Well, I don't know. We don't know. We're not meant to know. But it seems like any of those possibilities could happen depending on their choices. And whatever they happen to be, he'll he'll work things out somehow. There's a famous passage in The Lord of the Rings where Boromir shows up at uh, Rivendell for the Council of Elrond. And he's he's had this dream that came to him once, you know, that he's, he says, uh, go to Imlordis where the ring is and you'll have counsel that can conquer the Morgul spells. And he tells them, this dream came off to my brother and once to me. Mm-hmm. And the suggestion is that, well, Faramir was supposed to go, right? Were you nuts? He got the dream again and again and again and again, and they wouldn't let Faramir go because, well, he's not Boromir. So finally... Whoever's sending this dream sends it to Boromir and works his will that way. And it's kind of strange because you think, well, gosh, because Boromir's there, the council, the, the fellowship breaks up right there when it should. Frodo and Sam go alone to Mortar as they should. Merry and Pippin get kidnapped by orcs, which is the only way we're going to bring down Sormen through through Treebeard. And uh, and then uh, Legolas and Aragorn and Gimli, you know, end up with the Riders of Rohan. Anyway, it works out perfectly. It makes you wonder, well, what was plan A with Faramir? How would that have worked? Because plan B seems to work so good. So, so I was rereading the book this time. And uh, and Glimfrither says, oh, man, you should have told, you know, if you had told uh, everything that happened, 
that you were sent by Aslan. You know, Trumpkin might have sent you with an army. And you think maybe they weren't supposed to go with an army. Would an army have been able to go where they went? Mm, I don't think so. Anyway, there are no mistakes. Aslan's will seems to be worked out through this interplay with personal choice and personal mistakes. So. You mentioned the Lord of the Rings. It put me in mind of a line from the Silmarillion uh, where uh, Eru says, uh, you shall but prove mine instrument. Basically that whatever Morgoth does, Eru is going to, Eru here is, is God. It's, I'm going to commit the sin of allegory just to make the symbol for people who haven't yeah. read it. Eru is God, Morgoth is Satan. And God basically says to Satan, whatever you try and do, I'm going to just use it to achieve my ends regardless, whatever you try and do. And yeah, it, we, we get into very heady theological waters when we get to this point. But when he said, does Aslan know? I would say he knows. But he, in his instructions that they are just to follow the signs until either they've rescued the prince or they die. From that, I get the, the idea that Aslan knows, but they don't. They don't know how this is going to work out. And even Pudlam says, Aslan just told us to follow the signs. He didn't actually tell us what would happen when we followed them. We don't have those guarantees. Our responsibility isn't so much success, but faithfulness, obedience. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And I'll say, Lewis looks back on his own life, and, and I think he's writing autobiographically in The Four Loves, and he talks about the seemingly accidental way that friends may initially meet and form a relationship. And here's what he writes. A few years difference in the dates, and he's you know thinking of Tolkien and the Inklings, right? Mm -hmm. And all of his other great Christian friends. A few years difference in the dates of our births, a few more miles between certain houses, the choice of one university instead of another, posting to different regiments, the accident of, of a topic being raised or not being raised at a first meeting. Any of these chances might have kept us apart. But for a Christian, strictly speaking, there are no chances. No accidents, right? Mm. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. Right? And so, you know, Lewis in his own life looks on these people who have come into his life, these books that have come into his life, and sees a secret master of ceremonies behind um, that and, and sees no accidents in his own life. You'll get to that when you do the four loves, right? Yes, I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> uh, the dialogue-heavy section of The Silver Chair is definitely towards the end of the book when they meet the Lady of the Green Kirtle, and she tries to convince Puddleglum and the children that the sun, Aslan, the sun, Aslan, and the entire overland, they're all not real. They're make-believe. What is Lewis trying to sneak past our watchful dragons in this conversation? Because... Yeah. There seems to be a lot more going on here. That's right. That's right. There's a lot going on. And I, I think there's a certain kind of, certainly a, as a child when I read it, I had no idea that this was a critique of materialism and Sigmund Freud. But that's what it, where Lewis is going. That said, if you just read it as story, it works fine as story, right? Um, but really in, uh, is under an enchantment when we get there, right? First, his enchantment. And um, I write in my book, he echoes the plight of modern man who except for rare and fleeting moments of clarity has fallen under the spell of materialism, and so has also forgotten who he is and where his proper home lies, right? And, and we might think of the, the line from the Weight of Glory. Lewis says, do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am, but remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found 
to free us from the evil enchantment of worldliness, which has been laid on us for nearly a hundred years. That's the spell he lives under. It's the spell that the green witch tries to create in him. The idea that there's no world but this one, right? And then they all fall. Oh, there's no world but this one. And you know, a lot of people have fallen under that spell today. So that's a big first, first step in what's going on there. That entire scene, maybe it's just because we read the book this season, but that entire scene seems to me to be very Screwtapian. The Lady of the Green Kirtle is Screwtape. She is seeking the same sort of ends as Screwtape. And even really in earlier, when you mentioned the fact that he explains away the words that they see uh, written across the land, that's actually something that Screwtape talks about at the very end of the book, what they need to regard as real, well, let them just look to the physical processes that they can understand and then let that be the end of it. Well, if we can explain partially why these words are here, well, then that's all it is. That's what's real. Anything else is 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 mere wish fulfillment. Yeah, and keep going with that. I mean, that's a great point. And she's like Shutrip. She's there to fuddle them. Mm. Right? She throws this incense on the fire. She starts playing the lute and tries to keep them from thinking clearly. So we almost see exactly what Screwtape does in, in, in book one. You know, Wormwood, you're there to fuddle them. Don't get them thinking. Matter of fact, you're there to confuse them. The more confused and befuddled they are, the better. Mm. The second thing that happens, though, is where she tries to put the spell over them again. And, and it's critique of uh, Freud's critique of religion. Um, there never was a world. And let me see if I can't read this. Follows of Freud might say, I'll put the Freudian words into what she says. Tell me, I pray you, where is this heaven? Right? She's trying to say, where's Narnia? But Freud would say, where is this heaven? Is it a country located up in the clouds or in outer space? Your notion of heaven is just an illusion, just a dream you created because you wished for such a place. But there was never such a world. There was never any world but this one. Right? And then she does the thing where she says it's childish to do that sort of thing. And they think of the sun. And then they think of Aslan, right? You've seen lamps, the witch says. And so you imagined a bigger and better lamp and called it the sun. You've seen cats and now you want a bigger and better cat. And it's to be called a lion, right? And here's Freud as the, as the green witch. You've seen fathers. And so you have imagined a bigger and better father and called him God. While this is a pretty make-believe, it is suited for children, not grown-ups. It's time you put away your childish fantasies of make-believe. There's work for you to do here in the real world um, that consists of only what can be seen and touched, right? So it's his critique of um, Sigmund Freud. And then, you know, at the end, a really great argument, really uh, uh, Puddle Glum ends up with to say, look, let's say all this is true. That's a great line. It's the big climax. Let's say all this is true. We've made this all up. Four babies making a makeup world have made a better world than the real one. And Lewis's point is, if if your claim that all there is is, you know, atoms and molecules, well, our world is way better than that. <laughs> the one that we looked at that has goodness, truth, and beauty, and duty, and and community, right? It's way better than your world. A play world where there's beauty, goodness, and truth licks hollow a so-called real world where none of these things exist. A made-up world that is full of meaning and purpose where each individual is of infinite worth beats a real world where there is no meaning or purpose and people have no intrinsic value. It is far better than a world where might is the only right and where invading another country is seen, as the enchanted prince calls it, a most comical thing. And of course, Lewis, when he's an atheist, right, he's got that famous line, 
all that I believed in was grim and meaningless, and all that I valued, I thought, was imaginary. Lewis sees materialism from the... He, he, he writes for, for um, mere Christianity. I think they gave me this job because I'd been an atheist for long. I knew what Christianity looked like from the outside, which is a great one. But he also knew how thin and unsatisfying materialism was, and he could, he could critique it here. Some people point to this and want to talk about Pascal's wager. Um, and I don't know if your listeners want to go that far, but Pascal said, it's worth believing in God because if you believe in God, you might have to give up a few uh, rather superficial pleasures, which would be something, but not much. But the risk, you know, if you're wrong and eternity in hell, and and, and that is not, so, so when, when Puddleglum says, I'm going to live like a Narnia, even if there isn't a Narnia, and I'm going to live for Aslan, even if there isn't Aslan, he's not saying Pascal's wager. What if there is one? He's really saying the opposite. And I actually agree. Even if we were to find tomorrow that everything we've believed in about eternity is wrong, the life we're living, a life for others, a life of caring, a life of connection, a life of commitment is way better than, as the Beatles would say, the I, me, mine life, mm-hmm. right? And, and you know, it, 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 it beats that world to bits. Um, and he says, even if there isn't one, I'm going to live this way because it's a better life. It's a great, it's a great thing. I don't know if other people are convinced by it but, as I am, but I just think it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. And you can actually find that in Pascal where he makes the wager. He does make the point that the things that you give up for God, there are actually also good things that come with that. I mean, you, you only have to look at somebody who is dominated by some kind of sin and you've got to ask yourself, is, is that really living? That doesn't look better to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I'll say this, as a young person or Christians from the outside, there's this, Lewis has this thing where, where people think of God as somebody who walks around and finds anybody who's having fun <laughs> and tells them to quit, quit doing it. Thou shalt and, not. And I'll just say this. Yeah, yeah. Quit having fun over there, right? He's the great spoil sport. And I'll just say this, the older I get, the connection between holiness and happiness, they're not the opposite. It can be holy or you can be happy. They're the exact same thing. If you're holy, you're going to be happy. You can't be happy without being holy. Obedience, connection to happiness is, is not just arbitrary. It's They go together. They're the same thing. Anyway, when you're young, maybe you think the opposite. But man, after a while of living the life, it's like, yeah, that's, that's the way I want to go. I mean, Lewis talks about Christianity not making you happen. He means in a very different kind of sense. I wish he'd explain that a little bit more. He does the thing with pride. Is it bad to be pride? Well, it depends what you mean by pride, right? <laughs> Describe and, and, and define. Thing. Yes, yeah. He should have said, what does it mean to be happy? Does Christianity make you happy? Well, of course it does, but not like a different kind of very superficial quick happiness would be. So, yeah. For that, you have a bottle of port. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. Now, I recently interviewed Stuart from Into the Wardrobe, which is a, a YouTube channel, and he had produced this really fun video where he speculated about the origins of the Lady of the Green Kirtle. What is her backstory? Do you have any wild uh, speculative theories? No, I have very tame ones. So first off, I think Lewis would be the first one to say we should have lots of fun with Narnia, right? And, and we should write fan fiction, and we should speculate on what happens to Susan, and we should speculate where did this green witch come from, and you know, come up with all sorts of theories uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, if, you have, if you're a lit teacher, you have to you know, keep your feet on the ground a little bit. And, and, and I'll just say this, and, and, and do what the, the book suggests is fair. I'll, I'll get, let, me, let me give you a back one. Um, you and I didn't love 
the third Narnia movie too much. Ugh, no, stupid. Right, and, and 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 maybe we like the second one a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was this scene where Susan kisses Caspian, right? Ugh. And that's not in the book, right? <laughs> yeah. And everybody wants to talk about the kiss, the kiss, the kiss, the kiss. And I said, well, you know, oddly, you might be surprised that doesn't bother me as much as other things. And I said, I'll tell you what. Yeah, I was going to say, it, 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 it annoys me, but not very much. There, there, are, there are far yeah, yeah, bigger I, fish I, to fry. Yes, yes. And, and I'll tell you why it does bother me, because clearly Susan is on the edge of being interested in, you know, invitations and nylons and lipstick and kissing, right? And a and prince. Sure. Hello. At, well, She's only human. Well, the prince... Yeah, yeah. And the prince, well, he's he's had the girl with the freckles uh, at the start of Dawn Treader. And at the end, Ramandu's daughter, hey, you you know, you got to go back for her. So they're clearly interested in such things. So so it's in keeping with the spirit of the books. Like, mm-hmm. like if Lucy kissed somebody, I'd go, you have you do not understand Lucy at all, at least when she's younger, right? So anyway, it's in keeping with the books. So, so I usually try to do, well, what's in keeping with the books? So um, the first one, as everybody knows, is there's an old owl. It's not some young one who doesn't know what he's talking about uh, in the Parliament of Owls who says, long ago, a white witch came out of the north and bound our land in snow and ice for uh, 100 years. And we think this may be some of the same crew. It's the old owl who says that. And if that was all there was, I think we could speculate more. But at the very end of the uh, disappearance of Joe, and while they slept, Prince William was talking over the whole adventure with the older and wiser beasts and dwarfs, a signal from Lewis that, well, this is probably, this is probably it, right? And the older and wiser. And now they all saw what it meant, how a wicked witch, doubtless the same kind as that white witch who had brought the great winter on Narnia long ago, had contrived the whole thing, first killing Rillian's mother and enchanting Rillian himself. They saw how she had dug right under Narnia and was going to break out and rule it through Rillian, how she'd never dreamed the country, oh, and how he had never dreamed the country that that she would make him king, king in name, but really her slave was his own country. And from the children's point of the story, they saw she was in league and friendship with the dangerous giants of Harfang. And the lesson of it all is, your highness, says the oldest dwarf, wisest, that those northern witches always mean the same thing, but in every age they have a different plan for getting it. So I think we have to suggest she's a witch. She's a northern witch. I, I, I watched the video. I thought it was fun. And it's great to speculate, you know, is she a, a naiad gone wrong? Is she Lilia Lilith herself? Um, and I, th- I think we have to speculate on where she came from because, you know, if, if we follow the trajectory, well, do we follow the trajectory? Because what? What do we know about Jadis? We learn in Magician's Nephew. And that book hasn't been written when this book is written. Mm-hmm. So all we know, there's a white witch that came out of the north. Maybe Lewis hadn't figured it out yet. And he's not exactly consistent because she comes from Charn, where everybody dies, as you know. And then she's there in the north. So does she have a giant for a boyfriend? That's possible. And this could be some <laughs> offspring there. Uh, I think it's possible. But but I, I like this line of thinking. I, I'll actually agree and disagree with the old dwarf. He says they're always after the same thing, but they do it in a different way. Well, I think they do it in a pretty similar way. And and this keeps in line with the thing you guys are talking about is, is evil has almost no creative powers at all, right? Can't imagine anything, can't step in somebody else's shoes, can't imagine what good is like. It, Sauron can't possibly imagine what Gandalf is up to. Evil can't understand good because it lacks imagination. So uh, let's see, the White Witch has got her own posse of of hags and werewolves and woozes or whatever they are, and they're going to take over Narnia. But she kidnaps Edmund under the pretense that he's going to be a king, and that's actually what he's supposed to be anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Green Witch kidnaps Rillian, and he's going to become king, but he's supposed to become king anyway. 
They're both shapeshifters. Uh, she can, the green witch can turn into a serpent. The white witch can turn into, I can't remember if a she's the boulder stump? or the tree stump. Tree stump, tree stump. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And let me grab my book here because you'll like this line. Here's a great line. If you had watched long enough, you would have seen the stump walk across the boulder and the boulder sit up and begin talking to the stump. For in reality, the stump and the boulder were simply the witch and the dwarf. And here's the line. For it was part of her magic that she could make things look like what they aren't. Well, there's Lewis as a genius, right? And isn't that exactly what evil does? Mm -hmm. It makes things look like what they aren't. It makes bad look good, makes good look bad. Um, and, you know, they can change how they, their appearance are. They both appear as beautiful women, incredibly beautiful women. So Edmund Caesar, the most beautiful woman he ever saw. And when Rillian and uh, what's what's the... Drinian, they both see her. They're both struck by her beauty. And Caspian's uh, mom, she's she dies trying to tell him something, right? And she just and I think she's trying to say, there's a really, really beautiful woman, but don't be tricked. She turns into a snake and oh, he's going to bite you. That's what she's trying to say. At the oh, the advice end. of I every think. mother to her son. <laughs> Stay yeah, away yeah, from yeah. other so, women. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think they have a, a lot in common, both the Green Witch and the White Witch. Um, so, so I think they're. I think we have to conclude at the end of the day, they're probably both witches of the North of the same kind. Where the Green Witch comes from, we don't know. I, you know, I would never say she's the White Witch. You know, Aslan killed her. Yeah, not a, you're not an idiot. Um, could she be brought back? Uh, I don't know. I, but I, to tie a yeah. few of these uh, threads together, you spoke about their similarity. Well, that's the very line that Lewis has in Mere Christianity when he's talking about pride and sanctity. He says, if you want similarity, every single dictator, despot, they are all the same. If you want yeah. uh, variety, that's when you that's look to right. the saints. That's right. That's right. And oddly enough, you know who they resemble a bit is Miraz, right? All these tyrants look the same. Mm -hmm. um, they they want to pretend like they're taking power legally um, for their own you know, self-image and to confuse other people, but really it's just I, me, mine, me, me, me. So, yeah. yeah. Well, let's wrap things up and talk about the end of the book. And there are a few points in the Chronicles of Narnia which, when I'm reading them, they're liable to make me tear up a little bit. You've got Aslan's death at, at the end of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Reaper Cheap leaving the children in the Dawn Treader, and also this ending, the end of the Silver Chair when Caspian dies. But it's, it's also the ending out of all the books where I, I, I cheer some of the most because Caspian is restored he's brought back to life he and Aslan actually come into our world which I'm very excited as a child and the bullies get their comeuppance the school this terrible school it starts to be fixed and I just want as we as we wrap, wrap up this interview I just really want to offer you the floor because your final chapter is entitled what matters in the end so I just want to flip that around the other way why does this ending matter yeah, and I think it's I think it's one of Lewis's best endings, uh, if you want my opinion, and and because it's so satisfying. And and I'll start off with with uh, a line that needs to really be fleshed out. So uh, you know, Rillian gets his wits back. He's 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 back, baby, and he's feeling good. And uh, he says, "Look, we we're going to go out and take the adventure that Aslan sends us." I know it's grim out there, but remember, Aslan's going to be our good lord, whether we live or die. That's a great line, right? And mm -hmm. and Saint Paul says something like it, right? And and yet non-Christians are going to say, well, yeah, if you live, he's your good Lord, but if you die, that doesn't seem so good to me. And even, even non-Christians must have that sense. 
how, how is Christ my good Lord? You know, my beloved so-and-so just died. And so, so Lewis gives him that, that uh, line twice. He says it again. As and will be our good Lord, whether we live or die. Well, they start up the path and the lights start going out. But guess what? They make it right to Narnia just in time as the lights go out and they live. So he's their good Lord. He got them there providentially. And there's a group of Narnians and the hole is just right. And there's somebody to pull them out and dig them out. And, and that's how Aslan's your good Lord. Well, what about the dying part, right? And, and a lesser author wouldn't have, would have said, oh, well, I'm not going to talk about that. Yeah, be well, father, the father, son are reunited and the children go back home. Yeah, yeah. Everyone lives happy yeah, yeah. ever after. That's right. Yeah, drive home safely, right? Have a good day. Anyway, he, we get there and he dies in his arms, right? And it's as sad as sad can be. What does it mean for Aslan to be your if you live or die? Well, we get to see the scene. And there's the, there's the stream again, the same one that Jill drank from, now has a, a different property. That's where this dead body goes. By the way, it's the only dead body that we see going there in the, in the last battle. No one goes to this stream. So it's it's not an equal sign. And the stream alone doesn't, um, bring him back to life. Eustace has to pluck a thorn and, and, and add the blood of Aslan for him to resurrect. And he gets younger and better looking and full of life. And he jumps up and Lewis, who's a great writer, he rushes to Aslan and he gives Aslan the, the kisses of a king and Aslan gives him the wild kisses of a lion. And you go, that's what it means for Aslan's going to be your good Lord, whether we live or die. We see the same thing at the end of... Uh, Screw tape letters, right? The patient dies at the end. Spoiler mm. alert, sorry, everybody. But yeah, you, already, you guys <laughs> uh, already covered it, right? Yeah, well, we should be done at this point. If anyone hasn't read yeah, the screw right. tape letters, what the heck are you listening yeah. to us now for? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then he saw him, right? And, 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 and boy, I don't know that there's ever been two better depictions of death than Caspian coming back to life there and the patient coming to eternal life in the last letter of screw tape. Um, that's what it means. Okay, so, so we say... Yeah, that's what you mean. Aslan will be our good Lord, whether we live or die. So that's one. Uh, the second thing that I think is great is, um, I think you've mentioned before that you hate that the scouring of the Shire was cut from uh, the, the Lord of the Rings movie. And I do, because that's uh -huh. well, kind of the whole point, right? That's the whole point. You've been brought on this. That's what you've been trained for, says Gandalf. You're going to go in and set things right. That's how these things work. You've been saved to save others. You've been trained to become Christ for them in the world. And so, so Jill, who's been miserable and a victim and helpless, now is going to be an agent of justice and setting things right, right? And, and look, Aslan could have gone and done all that by himself, but he chooses to have Jill and Eustace with the help of really and go in there and do it. And um, so, so she, that's what she's been brought here for. And from then on, so she's been changed by her adventure, as we all are. Even Puddleglum at the start says, you know, when Eustace says, oh, oh if you're such a uh, worried about it, don't go on the adventure. Oh, I'm not going to miss this adventure. It'll be great for me. And and he settle says in a down. jokey way. Yeah, settle <laughs> me down. But Lewis really means the opposite of that. This adventure will be great for you. It'll be the making of you, right? Um, it's the sea that makes the sailor. It's the adventure that makes uh, our protagonists. Last thing I got to say, if you read much online about Lewis, you'll you'll see people criticizing him for all sorts of things that, well, they don't know what they're talking about. And mm -hmm. what you'd like to say is let's sit down and chat about that. So at least you at least know what, what the issue is. So there's lots of people who complain about Susan not coming back. That's a whole issue. 
Uh, there's a lots of people who who want to look at what they claim are uh, Lewis being racist or sexist, and then they all want to complain about the, the the bullies getting spanked at the end, right? Because you know they, they don't want anybody getting spanked. He's 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 a mean guy. As someone who was bullied, I was totally fine with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let me go backwards. Let me go backwards. And and and, I, and I, again, this the, the text doesn't say this, but it supports this. This is the whole point. Eustace just a year ago just a semester ago, because this happened over the holidays uh, that he, he goes to Don Treader. Last semester, Eustace was one of these mean old bullies, right? And and he didn't have any friends. Uh, what did his friends call him? I don't know, because he didn't have any. There's the line, right? Mm. Well, he did have one waiting for him. Uh, Aslan was waiting, waiting for him to give him exactly what he needs um, to, to quit being so miserable and friendless. And guess what? It hurt, right? Hurt like like the most thing you can ever hurt in the world. His, his transformation hurt. Um, and why did it hurt? Well, we're meant to think that nothing else would have got his attention, right? Uh, in Problem of Pain, the famous line, uh, God speaks to us in our pleasures, uh, but shouts uh, in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And here's Eustace that's been deaf to everything, every call to, to repentance, now gets the pain of becoming a dragon, an undragon, and actually it works. Well, what about those five or six bullies that are mentioned on the next to the last page? Surely Aslan has plans for them, plans for them to prosper, plans for them to be transformed. And suggestion is they haven't been listening. They've been just like Eustace. I mean, why couldn't they just have been expelled without being reformed? Well, that's not the way Aslan seems to work. Uh, he's got plans for them as he does for all of us. And, you know, he's speaking to us at all, all the time. Uh, and if we'll listen to him, uh, he won't have to rouse us with the painful megaphone, maybe. Anyway, that, that's why that ending is particularly good, I think. And then, you know, he, he ends with this, this crazy little, they call it a button sometimes. It's this little upturn that has nothing to do with anything. We, we see it a couple of times. Logic, what do they teach them in the schools for the first one? Uh, Caspian, bother, or I lost, left my torch in Narnia, which has nothing to do with anything. Um, anyway, here the button is, uh, after everything had happened, they kept the passageway open down into Narnia. And on hot days, they'd go down there and sail around on the sea, all right? But he doesn't stop there. He says, if you're lucky enough to get back there, man, I hope, make sure you see those caves because there's something. And, and the oldest of us says, yeah, I'm going to see those caves if I get there, <laughs> right? I, I, and, and, you know, we feel like it's been real and it has been real for us. We've, we've journeyed with Jill and Eustace and Puddle Gorman. We've seen what they've seen and hopefully we've learned what they've learned and we bring it back with us. So, so anyway, that's, that's why the, the button seems to work because it's just a suggestion that, that, in a spiritual sense, in an emotional sense, Narnia has been as, as real as the other world. Lewis has this great line um, on three ways of writing stories for children. He says, uh, readers don't despise real woods because they've read of enchanted ones. The reading makes all real woods a little enchanted. And of course, that's how we end the book. Our world is more enchanted than it's been before. And that's a good thing. And when I visited the kilns, I got there a little early, so I spent half an hour wandering around the woods in the area. And I'm going to admit, I kept my eyes open for fawns, just in case. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the trees might have been saying something to you, right? <laughs> they, they'd woken up. So anyway, it's, it's good. It, it, I, I learned from, uh, from Lewis and Tolkien that the world that we live in has been disenchanted by that spell of materialism. It's taken the enchantment out of everything around us and turn it into just atoms and molecules. And so Lewis and Tolkien want to break that spell and let us see the, the, 
the spirit that's in the world around us. Let us see the unseen and sense it. So uh, he, they both do great jobs and that's why we keep reading them. And a lot of people, when they read Lewis and they hear him talk about MacDonald, they go and read Fantasties and are utterly confused as to what on earth did he love about this book? And I think it's that point specifically. It re-enchants the world. Because in Fantasties, you have somebody that goes on this incredible journey and it began as just an ordinary day looking like a very ordinary world and a veil gets drawn back and they see that it's packed full of wonder and magic that they never knew was there. And you know, what's funny is, is lots of people discover that, you know, the world is charged with the grandeur of God, you know, and, and that's the suggestion. But only those who see it take off their shoes. That's right. That's right. Every Lewis in Letters to Malcolm say, every book, bush is a burning bush, right? If mm. we could but see it. Yeah. That's and MacDonald said that the ideal was for every meal to be a Eucharist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Brown, thank you so much for coming on Pints for Jack. Now, obviously, people won't be able to pick up the, a copy of Inside the Silver Chair since it hasn't yet been published. Uh, so we're going to have to wait a little bit for Netflix to pull their finger out and get on with it. Uh, but where can they go to pick up your other books and also find out more about you? Yeah, so I'll say that they can go to my uh, Amazon page and find out all my books there. And, you know, there's still copies of Inside Narnia, the Guide to the Lion, Witch Wardrobe, Inside Prince Caspian, Inside Voyage of the Dawn Treader there. My Lewis biography will be there. And uh, if people are trying to save some money, there's lots of used copies out there. One of the greatest things about Amazon is you can now get a book for half the price usually, which is great. Um, and then if you want to learn more about me, you could go to my webpage at Asbury University and uh, have, have a little bit more in-depth look at the kind of things I've done. So yeah, those are all great. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. And we would also like to thank all of our Patreon supporters, particularly those who support us at the top tier. That's Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kane, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. We're now nearing the end of season four. Uh, and so we'll be having a wrap-up episode in a month or two. And we'll be reading out some of the latest iTunes reviews. So please write us a funny one and give us five stars. And please join us next time when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>